is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the FDA to finally approve one of the vaccines. They're under the emergency use authorization right now. Looks like the FDA is headed towards approving Pfizer and maybe soon. Speaking of Pfizer, the company says it has a pill, maybe, to treat sick COVID patients. Did you see the pictures from Lollapalooza in Chicago? Maybe you went to the show. Tens of thousands of people crowded together. Was that smart? And we will get into a lawsuit in California over schools and masks. We start with vaccine approval. Dr. Eric Topol is chair for Innovative Medicine, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. So, doctor, once the vaccine is approved, does it kind of end the argument people use against the vaccine that it's experimental? Well, it'll have a big impact, uh, but it would have had a far better um, pre-Delta variant <clears throat> impact had it been done in May or June. It looks like it's going to get done now at the end of August or the first few days of September. And the only good thing now is at least the FDA are talking. They're talking to the public. They're telling us that they're all hands are on deck. But they could have done that, of course, months ago. And um, it, is, it isn't a rush job. It's actually doing it right. The question is compressing the schedule because they started with this review back last December that Pfizer and Moderna were sending in parts of the application for full approval on a, on a serial basis. And they had to do plan inspections, but they've had seven, now eight months to do these plan inspections. Uh, so there's not, a, there's not a good excuse that they didn't have the all hands on deck back months ago. But whenever they do get this approval, it's going to have a, a very strong impact for getting more requirements uh, across the board, all the different sectors, municipalities, military, health systems, private companies, uh, high schools, universities, on and on. And it's going to get a lot of people who, as you alluded to, are still circumspect. They want the full approval. They don't know this has really got the blessing, as you said. So it's going to help them, too. The, the first part, easy to understand, easy for requirements. Okay, they go in place. The second part, I don't know if I've been sold on that all the way through. And usually it's you who's the more cynical one oh, me? over there. Cynical? Um, yeah, me? who knew? <laughs> yeah. Um, but but it seems like people who were pointed to that are just using it as an excuse. Oh, I'll wait till it's FDA approved. They can find another excuse. And then people who are waiting, <laughs> saying this will change things. It, maybe it's a little too rosy to go, this is really going to change things. There's plenty of time to get I, the shot. I understand your cynicism. Um, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a really big survey, and they found that the uh, full approval was the number one reason people gave. Now, you're right. Some people will go move on to the next reason. But I have to say a lot of people, a lot who I've spoken to, are really waiting just for this one. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is uh, I was looking over the other day some research on other vaccines. I mean, full approval for most vaccines from the FDA usually takes a very long time. So it's this kind of this weird argument going on, isn't there? On the one hand, you can make the argument that if they do authorize it by the fall, uh, they're acting much, much quicker than they have ever done before with previous vaccines. On the other hand, there's the argument that they've already given it to so many millions of people around the world you know, what's the point of holding out? You may as well just say, OK, the thing works. It's safe. Let's just give it a stamp of approval. Well, I think there's a, a lot of different angles to that. Uh, first of all, there's never been a new vaccine under an emergency use authorization in the history of this country. 
So to have hundreds of millions of doses given uh, and have a remarkable efficacy and safety, uh, you know, that that's assured now. But this under the rubric of emergency, there are lots of legal concerns about making it a requirement or a mandatory. Your other point about how long it normally takes, this is the, the normal successful vaccine program takes on average eight years and many vaccine programs fail. So the fact that this is all done in 10 months in 2020, from the sequence of the virus in January to actually having completed largest trials in the history of vaccines done in November with rolling out in December. So everything's compressed. You know, this is, as you well know, we're in a crisis here. You don't you don't want to wait a long time to get stuff done. And in fact, we didn't wait a long time for these re remarkable trials, remarkable, momentous progress in the vaccine. So this is just part of that story is you got to compress the schedule and do it right. Dr. Eric Topol, Chair for Innovative Medicine, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Doctor, thanks. So Pfizer has its COVID vaccine now, says it is developing an antiviral pill to fight the virus. Dr. David Bulware, infectious disease physician, scientist at the University of Minnesota. He's been working on his own clinical trials of potential COVID treatments. So, doctor, are we now closer to having a pill, a medication for COVID? Well, we might be a little bit closer, but I think that, you know, for the, the, the new Pfizer, um, you know, sort of experimental, you know, drug under consideration, um, you know, I think they're just starting the process. And so whether it works is, is you know, yet to be determined. Okay, so then the question is, is there something else? Because now that we're going into uh, soon, it, it's shocking to say it, but we're, you know, approaching rapidly the second year, really, of this pandemic. Uh, are we realistically closer to good therapeutics that can be used at early stages of uh, COVID to keep people out of the hospital and to aid uh, and abet the vaccines? Well, that's a great question. And I, and I wish I had an answer that said, you know, you know, yes, we've got something today. Um, we certainly are moving closer. I think there's a number of different, um, you know, new antiviral medicines that are under study, one by Merck, one by Pfizer, that act by different, you know, different uh, sort of targets on the, the virus itself. There's also, um, you know, repurposed medicines, which are still under consideration and, and ongoing trials that are looking at that. Uh, of existing FDA-approved medicines that are you know, being re repurposed for, for different causes. And so that's another uh, pathway that people have looked at. How and where do you do this? Do you sign up people for trials that just haven't had their vaccines yet? So you get a fresh group and see if they get COVID and then give them the thing? Well, it depends. Yeah. So a lot of the trials, there's a couple trials that are um, enrolling nationally. So people in LA can can participate that, um, you know, for people that, that have, have COVID, um, they have a, a new diagnosis that they can enroll in those. And so there's two, at least nationally, that I know of, uh, and there'll be locally, um, local ones as well. When you mention repurposed drugs, are, are there any on the top of the list that, that, that seem to hold out the most promise? Well, there's a lot that people talk about on the Internet and Twitter and things like that. I'm not sure that always necessarily means that they're going to work, um, but there's a lot of enthusiasm for medications like ivermectin. Um, there's um, some better data for a medicine called fluvoxamine, which is an old school antidepressant uh, medicine, but um, has some interesting anti-inflammatory properties. Um, and there's some, some data with inhaled um, steroids that you might use for asthma um, that can help reduce symptoms. For the treatment that Pfizer is working on, how does it work and how early would you have to give it, even if it's early on? I mean, what's their, what's their game plan if this thing happens? 
Yeah, so the Pfizer study, they're looking at people within the first five days of illness. And so it's an antiviral, and so it's, it's targeting the virus itself. And it's a protease inhibitor, which um, for people um, basically kind of as, as you make sort of RNA kind of gets turned into to, to a protein, and then basically one long protein uh, string needs to be chopped up into multiple protein parts. And so that's the protease sort of enzyme. And so it blocks that step. And so then the virus can't, can't copy itself to replicate. And so it's sort of directly acting um, on sort of the viral life cycle. And it works against a lot of different coronaviruses. And so this was originally, I think, um, developed for the original SARS virus, you know, back 15 years ago. And now it's been sort of recycled for um, for the SARS-CoV-2, for the new coronavirus. Uh, would, uh, as, just as vaccines have been a game changer, would having uh, good pills uh, to be used in early stages be uh, a game changer as well. And I ask that question because it's interesting. I mean, this is a country, sadly, in many ways, where it's a country of pill poppers. And uh, people are more than happy to pop a pill in their mouth without wondering what's in it, but are afraid to take a vaccine. Well, there is there is certainly some truth to your statement there. Um, you know, I think oral therapy certainly can be, can be you know, they're easier to use. You can go to your local drugstore and, and pick up something, um, you know, the, the monoclonal antibodies, they work well, but once again, that's an injection and infusion. You got to go into the clinic, you, go, you know, during sort of office hours or when people are open. And so it's a little bit logistically hard versus a pill that you could take. You know, I think particularly like these antiviral medicines really may uh, benefit as a prophylaxis sort of after exposure. Um, you know, if you, if, you, if you were unvaccinated for whatever reason or you, you have a weakened immune system and you were exposed to someone with, with uh, coronavirus, then, you know, taking it as early as possible would, would benefit. I think one of the problems of just the reality of life is that, you know, kind of people wait a couple of days, you know, you get a little, little cold, little sniffles, a little cough, you may wait a couple of days to go to the doctor. And so oftentimes it's three, four or five days into illness before people really get tested. And then, um, you know, a lot of, I think, you know, a lot of people are going to get better regardless. And, and so I think earlier therapy is better to really change the course of what's going to happen. Dr. David Bulware, infectious disease physician, scientist, University of Minnesota. The Lollapalooza Festival was held in Chicago recently. More than 100,000 people gathered. Now, of course, they were outdoors. But they were packed together. That has some public health officials nervous. Let's find out uh, if you should be nervous. Dr. Emily Landon, Medical Director for Infection Prevention, University of Chicago. So, doctor, should people be comfortable having 100,000 people around them? Well, it kind of depends on what your goal is here. So people to who are fully alive. vaccinated. My goal is to stay alive. <laughs> it's very simple. Well, yeah, very simple. If, that's his if end you're game. healthy, yeah. well, I think some might also say that your goal is to not have a longstanding illness that sort of keeps you from doing the things that you want to do, right? Um, yes. So if you want to avoid serious bad outcomes of COVID, all of them, not just death, then I think a fully vaccinated, healthy person really is not at risk of having those bad outcomes. Unfortunately, you now can, because of Delta, spread COVID. If you did get a minor sort of nuisance cold, you could spread it on to other people who might have those bad outcomes if they're unvaccinated or immunocompromised or or high risk um, for whatever reason. And so you're going to have to take a few precautions because it's your civic duty and your sort of moral responsibility to do so. And that means, you know, I think it's cool if you want to take whatever risks you want to take, but then you should probably avoid contact with people who might be at risk. So wear a mask when you're at the grocery store, wear a mask when you're around other people. And if you want to make yourself a little safer at that large event, you can wear a mask there too. But the advice changes significantly if you live with a kid who's unvaccinated or if you yourself are unvaccinated, because then avoiding 
a really bad outcome for you or someone you love is a lot harder. And that's one of the things that's been pointed out for this because people came from all over the country, right? So let's say they went and they were supposed to be vaccinated or show their negative test. If you weren't vaccinated and you were in that crowd and people were spreading it around, that's probably really bad news for you, number one. Um, but if you were and you can now carry it and you're going back home to some place, then we're in the situation, like you said, you could be at the store and give it to somebody. You could give it to a kid, even if you don't know you have the thing because you're feeling fine. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's the summertime. There's a lot of college age kids out there who don't feel like they're really at high risk and they don't mind taking the risk for themselves. But I don't think they understand that they're taking that risk for the kids they babysit on Saturday night, you know. I'm curious about something because you mentioned in passing and and a lot of the folks we've had on the show in the past few weeks have talked about if you're vaccinated and you you do manage to get COVID, it's likely to be just a sort of a nuisance kind of thing. But that made me think, I mean, I've had I've lived before with neighbors who have been nuisances. Some are more nuisances than others. (laughs) So what what's the definition of a nuisance? What's the level? Well, just like, uh, you know, everybody experiences pain differently and colds differently. So I will say, I've said this before, nuisance cold and um, physicians that I know have said, Emily, it was not a nuisance (laughs) when I had COVID (laughs) when I was vaccinated. Um, So you're right. Um, It can be pretty, it can be pretty rough. You know, you can be febrile and feel pretty sick and even be short of breath, um, even though you're vaccinated. But honestly, the likelihood of a bad outcome, like long COVID even, or um, organ damage, or being in the hospital or needing to be on a ventilator is extremely low, especially if you're, that's for people who are healthy and who are vaccinated. Okay, so we're back to kind of where we were before. Once we stack up all this new information, it's it's very personal risk assessment. How averse or not am I personally to going to the baseball game right now? Yeah, and I think it's really important to understand that we've kind of transitioned from the government telling us what to do to avoid any any type of COVID to a situation where people have to assess their own risk. I mean, we've all been doing that to a certain degree for uh, you know months of this pandemic, but now we're really in a place where you know Chicago is a pretty demo- pretty liberal kind of place where we had a lot of mandates, a lot of shutdowns, and yet we're having Lollapalooza here. So it may feel like because we did that, it must be safe, but that is not the right conclusion to draw. It may not be safe for you. Dr. Emily Landon, Medical Director, Infection Prevention, University of Chicago Medical Center. Coming up after a short break, a lawsuit tries to stop mask mandates in schools in California. The Orange County Board of Education now suing California over its mask mandate for teachers and kids. It says the mandate harms kids. But how? Lisa Sparks, member of the Orange County Board of Education, dean of the School of Communications at Chapman University. So, Lisa, uh, what is the issue with masks at schools? Well, it's important that the public understands that that the governor is in violation of the California Emergency Services Act, which is the code 8629, and it requires the governor to proclaim the termination of a state emergency at the earliest possible date that conditions warrant. Well, on June 11, the governor announced that the actions of Californians over the past 15 months have successfully curbed the spread of COVID-19, and he rescinded his stay-at-home order. And conditions clearly warrant the end of the state of emergency. He announced it as such, and he's had legal arguments saying such. 
Uh, yet he's refused to give up his emergency powers. And he's well, all right. All right. I'm going to I'm going to stop. I'm, Lisa, I'm going to stop you there because we're getting a little bit off topic, I think, uh, because the world changes. The virus has changed. The, the you know, we're dealing with this variant, which wasn't uh, as prevalent as it was uh, at the time when the governor. And you're right. He did uh, say at the time that everything was kind of going in the right direction. But now things are not going in the right direction. So since things are not going in the right direction, I go back to my question. What's the problem of kids and faculty wearing masks in school? Well, if you look at the hospital systems, the, the whole basis of the state of emergency was to prevent flooding of the hospital system to ensure that health care is available. And, and that's just not happening. So there, there are a lot of different arguments out there. Um, but essentially, he's in violation of his own arguments, um, saying that there's no longer an emergency. Still not answering the question. There, there's got to be harm for like a lawsuit, right? So what's the harm for the kids wearing the masks? Well, the, the data is still out there. There's a JAMA article that just came out this week that's, that is, uh, you know, talking about, uh, you know, you know it's, it just continues to be very unrealistic that the masks are efficacious uh, and children are not at risk. Children are, are simply not at risk. Well, Parents no, wait, wait, are walking wait, wait, with their wait, feet. Okay, all right. Older children Lisa school. Sparks, stop, yeah. stop for a second. Uh, I can't let you get away with that, and I'm not going to let you get away with that. <laughs> children are at, at risk. Children, in fact... There is, unfortunately uh, and regrettably, there is a surge all across the country, and we've done this story on, on, on the show now several times, of very young children, of the very age that we're talking about, public school children, who are not only at risk for getting COVID, but are ending up in ICU units because the disease they're getting is proving to be as severe and in some cases more severe than some of the older people who have gotten it. So when you say that children are not at risk, that's just absolutely wrong. They may not be as great at risk. They may not die as easily as older people, but they are most certainly at risk. So now having having wait. So now back to the question that Mike and I have now asked you four times, I think. Uh, what, <laughs> what is your problem with kids and teachers wearing masks while they're in a school setting, which has, by definition, lots of people in a single room? What's the problem you have? I don't have a problem. I'm representing the parents who are telling me, uh, and the Board of Education very loudly, and they're walking with their feet to enroll their children in schools where mask mandates are optional or not required. So the larger question really is, is why in private schools uh, are, are masks not required or optional? Uh, why in homeschooling? You know, obviously, that's a more flexible environment. Parents are going to a more flexible, flexible environment. And, they, um, and, and what we're hearing, and from a legal argument, which is what I keep going to, the, because the, the point of the lawsuit, it's a legal argument. And so really talking with the lawyers, you're, you're going to get, uh, you know, detailed information um, in terms of the, the essence of the lawsuit. But but essentially, um, it's the governor overreaching and misusing his power. And this is just one data point uh, regarding that. Do you guys actually have oversight directly over all the districts there? Because it's the state says the districts are going to enforce the masks, but aren't you guys just more of a guidance kind of role? Right. So that's exactly right. We how have do you school, even Yeah, we have 28 school districts here in Orange County. And what we what we try to do is be the voice for the parents and the children um, to highlight, you know, issues that we're hearing about. So, so if you don't if you don't run the districts, though, if you don't run the districts, they're going to no. do what they want. Is this exactly. a political thing? Uh 
boy, it could be. It should be. It should not be, but it sure could be. Well, um, but but I, it does. It does sound. I mean, the objection that you keep articulating. Uh, is that this is all about the governor, in in your view, or in the view of the lawsuit, I suppose, that the governor has overstepped his emergency authority because uh, he's ordered masks in schools, uh, and yet he's already declared that things, at the time he declared it, I point out again, uh, were moving in the right direction. That seems to be your essential argument. I, I really haven't heard well, anything from argument. you. Wait, haven't finished. I, okay. I, I have not yet heard from you what the argument is why it's harmful to kids and teachers. What is the harm that is done to them when without the masks there is the possibility, real possibility, of harm? What's the problem? Well, there are lots of emergency rooms and hospital rooms that are available for care. We've reached herd immunity. We're, I think, close to two-thirds of America are, are vaccinated. In California, it's more than 50%. Um, and, and now this time period is, is very different than a year ago. It's just not the moving target that it, that it was. Um, it's just a different ballgame at this point. And parents are done. They are absolutely done with the mask mandates. And, and they're walking with their feet. So I'm here to represent parents. Lisa Sparks, member of the Orange County Board of Education, dean of the School of Communications, Chapman University. COVID is making a comeback in China, where it all started. The country is now dealing with its worst coronavirus outbreak since the start of the pandemic. One city is being sealed off, and local officials blamed for lax pandemic measures are being punished. China claimed last year it fought off the virus and was able to stamp out small flare-ups. Well, now the country is on high alert as a cluster of cases caused by the Delta variant touched at least 17 provinces. After a hotspot grew from one city near a famed scenic area, officials issued an order that no one, whether tourist or resident, could leave. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.